Today on the podcast, we showcase Faith Angle's first international forum in two parts. First is a short conversation with veteran political journalist Susan Glasser of The New Yorker. Last fall, Susan joined eight scholars and 16 journalists, half from Europe, half from the States, to engage over two and a half days with some of the world's best religion scholars. One of those scholars, Dr. Mika Goodman of the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem, gave a beautiful talk that we're replying for you on the second part of today's podcast. Susan has covered Washington and other global capitals for three decades. She founded Politico Magazine, was a 10-year correspondent with the Washington Post, was editor-in-chief at Foreign Policy, and she and her husband, Peter Baker, have a second co-authored book due out in September, a biography of James Baker called The Man Who Ran Washington, linked in the show notes, along with some of Mika's scholarship. Mid-quarantine, today, Susan raises some tough questions. What's happened in American society, in a country famously described as a shining city on a hill? What lets some consumers think they can spit on shopkeepers doing their duty, wearing a mask and operating a store? What makes police officers think that they can carry out arrests without any apparent sense of the humanity of the person being arrested? Or closer to home, how has Washington become so dysfunctional even compared with 30 years ago when Susan began covering Jim Baker and Capitol Hill. While others may see surprising cultural unity in a time of sheltering in place, Susan's questions have real bite. And Mika Goodman's talk gets squarely into it. Wondering aloud, for example, what happens if God is brought into a political or public conversation? If one party thinks God is on their side, doesn't it flat out kill the conversation? shutting down the dialogue? On the other hand, with a curious twist, Mika argues from the Midrash that Judaism historically honors the open-minded listener, the tribe who learns not only its own history and rules, but also the history and perspectives of the other. When faith is understood that way, it invites us, as a participant, into a centuries-old conversation, passed down to each successive generation. It's an ongoing dialogue, an ongoing tradition. Of course, in our time, it's tricky to give others the benefit of the doubt when AI and our social media platforms are unendingly feeding us what it knows we want. It's tempting to disconnect entirely from the other. Facebook and Twitter, Mika says, are ingenious attention merchants, atomizing us and entrenching us in existing opinions. But there's a better, more generous, and more life-giving way, Mika argues, squaring with Susan's discovery and researching Jim Baker's life. Recalling that Baker served in top posts for Presidents Ford, Reagan, Bush 41, and Bush 43, Jim's second wife, Susan, was deeply and actively involved in D.C. prayer groups, which crossed party lines, leading to true friendships with Democrats, including Tipper Gore and Hillary Clinton. Sometimes healthy, pragmatic compromise came from such friendships. And as Mika describes, this kind of curiosity and open-minded listening while still holding to principle is the direct opposite of distress and anxiety. Enjoy the conversation. Both parts today. Well, hi, Susan Glasser. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Josh. 
enjoy and I appreciate your, your being part of the mix. So part of this podcast is about diving directly into issues themselves, oftentimes sort of religion and public life, religion's role in media and beyond. But also there is a little bit of a window into these actual forums that happen. And we had to cancel one this month. So I wondered if you might just say a few words about participating in one as a, a remarkably talented journalist, as a first time participant in a faith angle forum. Uh, last November. Well, I guess I'm going to remember that as one of the last moments of the before world when we actually met people in person and traveled to places and how valuable, of course, that is. I have to say for the first couple months of quarantine, I resolutely almost have avoided thinking about travel and going places, which as a journalist and a foreign correspondent is what I've been doing my whole life. But recently I have been just drawn to thinking more and more to all the places that I would like to go and where I have been. And I have to say that I was thinking right before I heard from you about this podcast, about that forum in France that I went to last November, which brought together really a bunch of smart, provocative minds in a place where they wouldn't otherwise be gathered and in a grouping that wouldn't otherwise be gathered. You know, it's not the same set of experts talking to each other, but just doing it in a nicer setting. It was a collection of people who I think the diversity of both their backgrounds and roles are what made it valuable for me. Yes, I also would like to go basically anywhere in France at this exact moment as well. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. yes. Well, I think part of our effort was to say that that religion still matters. Religion matters differently maybe in Russia than in the United States than the Middle East and other places, but it still has this power and dynamic in a lot of places. And, you know, I just would be curious as a journalist who's been involved, co-founder of Political Magazine and The New Yorker Today and two books under your, under your belt, A Decade with the Washington Post, do you think that religion is something that journalists get time to think about, reflect on? Is it a missing piece of the conversation? How do you see uh, that couple of decades in, several decades into a prolific journalism career? Well, look, first of all, in terms of politics alone, it would be malpractice not to consider the enduring role that organized religion plays in mobilizing voters and in affecting outcomes of elections in the United States is just too important of a factor not to be considered. We saw that just again the other day, Donald Trump, perhaps the the least religious president on some level that we've had in modern times, or certainly one of many, at the same time making a special point of appearing in the White House briefing room just uh, this past Friday to say how he personally had insisted essentially religious houses of worship be exempted from COVID regulations and be allowed to reopen right away, making a big blustery show of saying how he would personally overrule governors and mayors if he had to in order to make that happen. Although, of course, it's not clear that he could do so, and he's certainly not going to do so. And of course, reinforced the point about his own irreligiosity by playing golf as opposed to attending one of these houses of worship that he (laughs) insisted should be open. But I digress, but not really. I mean, look, the bottom line is this is too important of a political constituency, and yet it is often not a frame of reference that many journalists come to fully formed or, or with the level of sophistication and time dedicated to it. When I was an editor at the Washington Post, we essentially segregated religion into its own beat in a way 
that was useful perhaps, but it also meant that it probably wasn't integrated as much into our political coverage as it could have been. Yeah, I, I thought as we were trying to come up with something from that forum to share with listeners to this podcast, we arrived on a talk from Mika Goodman about pluralism and about sort of two schools of thinking, you know, Hillel versus Shema, and what's distinct about that. And the idea was sort of like, religion really is a large conversation that spans the centuries. And especially if that's your tradition, you enter into that dialogue and you actively debate and engage. That is, in a sense, enduring and long-term different than votes alone. There is a larger conversation, dialogue that he's drawing us, Mika was drawing us into. We talked, of course, about nationalism and about populism and about tribalism and many other things, but there was a sense in which that was sort of the, I think maybe the turning point of the conversation there. And so, yeah, along the lines you're describing, is there something about faith that is similar in your view? You've just written a book on Baker to the larger democracy experiment we're a part of, sort of an ongoing reality. You see religious faith as potentially playing a helpful role at all in this larger conundrum we find ourselves in. Well, Josh, first of all, I'm really glad that the talk that you settled on for this podcast was the Mika Goodman one, because I did think that was kind of the center of the conference that we attended. It was the high point, I think, and you saw people kind of spellbound by it and people who might not have normally had that as their frame of reference. And listening to you even recap it now, I think what strikes me is your framing of religion in a way as a centuries-old ongoing running conversation in which people dip in and out of or come out from different perspectives, different backgrounds, different faiths entirely uh, at this moment of extraordinary political division rather than simply seeing different religious denominations as agents of political outcomes in our country. I think that notion of it as a conversation and an ongoing dialogue is particularly valuable at a time when people are not speaking to each other across what appear to be ever-growing chasms in the society. And I think that's one of the values, by the way, of convening people in person, trying to get them to have discourse. And, and again, that's something that sort of interfaith conversations have done over the centuries and that that's where I would think there is a real value because A, these are people who've learned <laughs> over time to engage with each other. That's something that larger and larger parts of American society aren't. And I don't know about you, but I woke up this morning once again, contemplating the sort of hard to resolve question of what makes somebody spit on another person who's wearing a face mask, a clerk at a store who's been told to execute the policy of their state for public health reasons. I can understand disagreeing about those policies, but I really, I actually was this morning before this conversation trying to put myself in the shoes of like, but what makes the person spit at the other person? What made that police officer act the way that he did in Minnesota this week? Those are the kinds of questions that religion brings to the table in some ways that feel urgent right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what our listeners think about the talk that Mika raises, but his whole idea that the algorithms on Twitter and Facebook and otherwise are giving us something more of what it thinks we will like, and that uh, essentially that sort of closes us off more and more, has us listen less and less to other perspectives, which is the one that 
that he says is the more admired tradition, of course, is a dynamic, is a reality. And what is the condition you find yourself in when ultimately you're spitting at a clerk or doing any other manifest number of things we sometimes can see on Twitter? Having been in Moscow for a long season and studied what's happening in the Kremlin and now reflecting on the larger legacy of James Baker, is there anything that does give you a little hope? Maybe it's past legacy or is it anything you're seeing maybe connected to this newer book that is more, more hopeful five months out from an important election? Well, a couple of thoughts. I mean, one, the role of all encompassing ideologies, whether it's religion or some other kind of faith in nationalism or whatever your ism, unfortunately, it seems to be in keeping with the tenor of a moment that's much more tribal in nature and therefore seems to be pushing people to subscribe to more all-encompassing worldviews after this sort of unique post-World War II epoch that lasted really a long time, <laughs> in hindsight, in which perhaps the, the massive carnage of those big isms pushed people away from it. But we were traveling across the former Soviet Union at a time of religious reawakening, but also of religious re-co-optation by the state, certainly in a place like Russia, where, as you know, Vladimir Putin has grown very close to kind of the reborn and reimagined post-Soviet Orthodox Church, reflecting its role as a once-and-future power center and institution in the society more than its philosophy or worldview. It's interesting to have done a biography of Jim Baker, which, as you very kindly pointed out, will come out in September, and to have made a study of this ultimate Washington pragmatist and getter of things done at a moment in Washington where nobody gets anything done. <laughs> Pragmatism has been sacrificed on the altar of increasing rigidity and polarization, and the disappearance of incentive structures is both, I would say, the negative and the positive takeaway from that project. In a negative sense, yeah, we simply don't seem to have incentives for our politicians, at least ones that are working anymore, that require them to actually find ways to bridge the divide and to get things done and to engage with each other. Just as a modest example of that, the annual ritual of Congress passing appropriations bills, its core function in our system of government. There are 13 annual appropriations bills. When I covered Congress as a young reporter in the early 1990s, actually in the period when Baker was Secretary of State and, and George H.W. Bush was president, it wasn't seen as an optional function that, oh, well, maybe we'd get that work done and maybe we just screw it up again and wrap it all into one omnibus bill at the end. They haven't passed 13 appropriations bills in, I believe, more than a decade in Congress. The functioning of our institutions of government has stopped. It's a trend that does predate Donald Trump, of course, probably helps to explain some of his rise, and it certainly helps to explain some of his perpetuation in power as president doing things that in a previous era, in Bush and Baker's era, would have been unthinkable by a leader of any political Party. So incentive structures, they can be changed. They can be rearranged. That seems to me something that needs to be done. Jim Baker was not an ideologue. He is, by the way, a very religious man, interestingly enough, and has become more so over time. Uh, his second wife, Susan Baker, is deeply religious and in fact forged relationships across party lines in the late 1980s and early 1990s in Washington. She had created a prayer group of Washington power wives 
And two of the people that she grew closest with were Tipper Gore and uh, later Hillary Clinton. And she was very close, actually, with Hillary Clinton when she was the first lady. And Susan Baker's husband had run the campaign against Bill Clinton. I can't imagine Melania Trump either having a prayer circle or being close to Hillary Clinton. Let's just say they're different kinds of people. Right. Well, maybe worth our considering the admonition to not only study our own ways, but also the ways of our opponents and to listen to them as we're going to hear in this this talk with party in mind a little bit. All right. So I got to ask you one last practical question. I don't know how you do it with kids, with two big, major, major jobs who just finished this book together. What's your most practical piece of advice for staying useful, deliberate in COVID quarantine? <laughs> well, the good news is, is that we're still, my husband and I are still on speaking terms together. Uh, so collaborators in in work and in life. And in ways, we're, we're so lucky, obviously, not only to still have our jobs, but to be able to do them with a minimum of disruption at this moment in time. And also, we understand that it is an honor and a responsibility in a way to bear witness. The last few years have been a reminder of some of the core values of journalism and independent, skeptical inquiry that is nonpartisan, that owes no anyone of anything. These are, it's a privilege to be able to bear witness to the country, even as it's going through what's clearly a time of troubles. It was simpler before history reared its head again. <laughs> it's kind of nice when history happened to other countries and not to our country. But Journalism, the real secret, of course, is that it's, it's a great profession. We tend to complain uh, <laughs> a lot, but the truth is, is that it's amazing that we've been able to get paid for doing what we love to do, which is to learn and to explore and to read books and to talk to fascinating, interesting people and to encounter new ideas and new perspectives that hopefully do influence our worldview. Well, we'll link to the book in the show notes. Hope you can read Susan regularly at The New Yorker. Thanks for being with us today to start things off. Thank you so much, Josh. We talked yesterday about religion playing a a negative direction impact with bias in many settings, sometimes also as Giacchino's Casa was describing, playing a role that is constructive. And so today we're going to turn to the role that religion can play and biblical wisdom a little bit more directly than we often do at these. And I think we're going to sort of put our seatbelts on and go back to Jewish day school and learn a thing or two. So put your seatbelts on, if you will. Leading us off will be Mika Goodman. We'll be facilitating sort of the opening of that. He has just done the book Catch 67, which is his fifth Israeli bestseller and came out three months before the anniversary of the 1967 war. He is thinking, I suppose we could say, with the vantage point of non-majority perspectives squarely in mind. The idea for this panel is how can a person step outside of our preconceptions, biases, and frustrations to understand the other? What lessons might emerge in the context of thinking about populists versus elites, immigrants versus natives, and facilitating greater empathy? And so Philippa Stroud, Baroness Stroud, will be responding to that in the context of her work as a parliament, as an MP. I'm just going to briefly introduce... House of Lords. House of Lords, excuse me. And then in the House of Lords, Lords, but as a real policymaker and as a person who's advised senior policymakers for for years in the United Kingdom, as a person of faith. And so briefly introduce them both, and then we'll turn it over to Mika. Mika Goodman most recently did this book. He is maybe more philosopher than theologian. He said a time or two on the phone, I'm not a rabbi. 
is thinking very carefully about the context of pluralism and deep Jewish learning. He directs Bet Midrash Yisrael Amprat, Israel's leading pluralistic Zionist Bet Midrash for young adults. He holds a doctorate in Jewish thought from Hebrew University in Jerusalem, where he teaches. He's received uh, a number of prizes through the years, including the Leinhaber Prize for Religious Tolerance in his writings. And so following him then will be Baroness Stroud, Philippa. Well, that's an equally fascinating background, really. She is, as many of you know, CEO of the Legatum Institute in London. And she also co-founded back in 04 the Center for Social Justice initiative, sort of on the center right that does creative thinking about welfare, poverty issues, the broad social justice agenda. She's been senior advisor to Ian Duncan Smith, the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, Secretary of State more broadly, the Prime Minister from 2012 onward. But also, like, she has this faith story, and she went over to Hong Kong and worked alongside and among, both in Hong Kong and Macau, heroin addicts, ex-members of triad gangs, and serving homeless men and women before she came back to the UK and was ennobled and is here with her husband, David Stroud, who runs Forum as well. So basically, if national populism and immigration are big problems that are seen very differently by different groups, the idea is, where can we go for wisdom? Thank you so much for coming. Mika. So. You can't have a free society and a free country and a free democracy without it being founded in a very vibrant, open conversation. That is a great insight of John Stuart Mill, that great conversations create free societies. But what is a healthy conversation? So I'm paraphrasing on John Dewey now. A functioning conversation or functioning disagreement is a disagreement between two people that are wrong. In the following sense, I think you're wrong. You think I'm wrong. That's the beginning of a good conversation. Two people that are wrong, confronting each other, challenging each other, trying to listen and persuade each other. That's a functioning conversation. It's a healthy conversation. Those are the conversations that free societies are based on. What's a dysfunctional conversation? It's when I don't think you're wrong is, I'm not paraphrasing on John Dewey, I don't think you're wrong and think something's wrong with you. I think you're immoral for having that worldview. Now, that distinction between me thinking that your opinion is wrong and me thinking that you are immoral for having that opinion, that distinction, that makes a difference between a healthy conversation or the collapse of conversation. Now, we see throughout the world, and we've been discussing this in the past day and a half, that conversations are collapsing, that people see each other's opinion not as the wrong opinion, but they're not moral for having that opinion. They're not wrong. Something's wrong with them. And here's a question. Now, it seems like God will not be friendly for restoring a healthy conversation. Because here's what God seems to do to political conversations. Now, I'm not going to discuss now God and politics. It's more specific. It's God, the idea of God, in the political conversation. So here's how this could look like. So me and Josh are arguing about settlements in the West Bank. Having a heated conversation. And then, in one moment, in the conversation, I quote the Bible. Now, there's many interpretations of the Bible, but my interpretation happens to be right. So I'm quoting the Bible. What did I just do when I quoted the Bible? Now I said to Josh that my opinion about the West Bank is not my opinion. Whose opinion is it? It's God's. Now, once my opinion is God's opinion, doesn't matter about what? Gay marriage... West Bank, immigration, whatever it is. Now, the conversation has a serious problem. Why? Because now Josh is not disagreeing with me. 
Now Josh is disagreeing with God, which means in my eyes, Josh is not wrong. It means he's a sinner. And now I stopped listening to him. Now I need to fight him. So God destroys the conversation. Now think about it. If I believe that my opinions regarding issues happen to be God's opinions, which by the way, that's an amazing coincidence. It's pretty amazing. I'm pretty amazing. There's 7 billion people in the world, but my opinions just happen to be also God's opinions. And what happens now now it gets worse? What happens if you think that you have the same position? That for some odd reason, you think that your opinions are God's reasons, are God's opinions. So now conversation collapses, not only collapses, so now that's how you create real polarization. So one would say, well, if God is such a threat to a vibrant, healthy conversation, if God ruins the conversation, let's take God out of the conversation. And when God is out, it's just me against Josh. My opinions are just my opinions. Josh's opinions are just Josh's opinions. And maybe that's the beginning of curing the conversation. What I would like to offer today is a different way to think about it, different God to think about, a different role that God could have in a political conversation. And I want to do this to use the Talmudic model. So this will be like kind of a brief introduction to what the Talmud is about and how the Talmud presented conversations. And there is a lot here. There is a lot that I'm not going to say. A lot of implicit assumptions, historic Theological assumptions, philosophical assumptions, political assumptions, practical assumptions that are implicit. So we're just diving directly in. What is the Talmud? So the interesting thing about the Talmud, the Talmud is an attempt to document an ongoing Jewish conversation from roughly the first two centuries BC, actually until the fifth century. And roughly, this is how the Talmud would look. So there's two parts of the Talmud. One is called the Mishnah, the Mishnah. It's a text. It's a text edited around the year 200 by a person called Rabbi Yehuda Hamasi. Doesn't really matter. And this is how the Mishnah looks like. You open the Mishnah, this is what you'll see. So you'll see one side says X, the other side says Y. Let's say a school of thought called Bet Hidel argue X, School of thought called Beit Shammai argue why. That's the Mishnah. That's the end of the conversation. They present their case. They present their case. And the Mishnah never tells you who's right. Or it barely tells you who's right. That's the Mishnah. Now let me try to explain this part. This is the Mishnah. Became the canonized text of the Jewish tradition. Now canon has many, many meanings. In a religious tradition, canon means it has authority which means you can't criticize this text, but you can criticize anyone using this text. You can't say the Mishnah is wrong. Like could say you're wrong because it's not according to the Mishnah. So it's a text that has authority. But let's say also the Romans have canonized their laws and gave them authority. But the Mishnah, the paradox of the Mishnah, which is the first part of the Talmud, we'll explain later what part. The paradox of the Mishnah is that it didn't canonize the law. It canonized 
the disagreement regarding the law. I'll give you an example. Just You know how Jews celebrate Hanukkah, right? With Hanukkah candles. So the school of thought called Beit Shammai, which were Beit Hila, which were optimists. There's eight days of Hanukkah. So this is how you celebrate Hanukkah according to Beit Hila. The first night, you light one candle. The second night, you light two candles. The third night, you light three candles up to eight days. Seems like Beit Hillel were optimists. They thought that every day there was more light in the world. Beit Shammai were pessimists. They say somewhere in the Talmud that it would be better not to be born than being born. They're real pessimists. And they thought, this is how you light Hanukkah candles. First night, eight candles. Second night, seven candles. <laughs> Third night, six candles. So their pessimism is reflected in their, the way they understand the law. So these are two legitimate halachic understandings of Hanukkah. The Mishnah would say, okay, Beit Shammai says, this is how you light Hanukkah candles. Beit Tidin, this is how you light Hanukkah candles. It doesn't say what the law is. Now, there is a law. You'll find that somewhere else. Not in the sacred text. Not in the canonized text. So the Romans, they canonized the law. The Mishnah is a canonization of the disagreement about the law. Now, this is a very interesting paradox. An Israeli scholar called Moshe Hagelotad wrote about the paradox of the canonization of a disagreement. Why? Because canonized text is a text that has authority. What does disagreement do to authority? It obviously undermines authority, right? When my 11-year-old daughter asks her mother, my wife, Tippy, what time is bedtime tonight? And Tippy says, 8 o'clock. And then she comes to me, and she doesn't tell me. She just asks the mom. Dad, what time is bedtime? And I'm like, um, 9. What did she hear? What did she really hear? I think she heard 11. <laughs> because when mommy said eight and daddy said nine, what did she realize? There's no real authority here. Because that's what disagreement does to authority. Now, canonization of a disagreement is giving authority to something that's very structured, undermines the own authority. Now, this is the paradox of the Mishnah. Now, and this is the sacred text of the Jewish tradition. Now, so let's say this is the text called the Mishnah. After the Mishnah, another text was created. It's called the Gemara, the Gemara. And this is a text, which is a text about the text. Now, just so you understand, the Talmud is both texts. Now, the Talmud would be trying to figure out what did the Mishnah mean? What did Beit Hillel mean when they say you light candles this way? What did Beit Shammai mean when they say, so it's an interpretation of the Mishnah. But what's the structure of the Talmud? It's a disagreement. So this guy says, no, what they meant is this. And this guy says, no, what they meant is that. So the Talmud is the recording of an argument about the Mishnah. So if you think about it, so that's the Gemara, sorry, is recording the disagreement about the Mishnah. So the Gemara is a disagreement about the meaning of disagreement. Both texts together are the Talmud. So the Gemara, we're arguing in the Gemara, the scholars of the Gemara are arguing about the meaning of the Mishnah. They're arguing about the meaning of an argument. It doesn't end there. In Jewish tradition, studying Talmud became a very important intellectual priority. Actually, 
It's very interesting. Jews experience themselves as being commanded to study the Talmud. That's something we're supposed to do. It's activity that has religious value, studying the Talmud. And as a result, throughout the generations, an establishment called Bet Midrash was formed. The only translation I can think of Bet Midrash is a house of learning or a hall of learning. But this is what it really is. You walk into a Beit Midrash. And if you're ever in Israel, just walk in, go to like a Me'asharim, or like just walk in it and just, you'll be shocked by what you see in a Beit Midrash. What you'll see is many students in pairs, two people sitting in the same table. The Talmud is open and they're studying together the Talmud. But it doesn't feel like the library. It feels like the opposite of the library. When you're into a library, your experience is of silence. No one's talking because you need to concentrate. There's silence. In the Beit Midrash, you hear a very, everyone is talking. And what they're doing, and this is the cultural Jewish expectation of all those couples studying Talmud, they're expected, and that's what they do, to argue about the meaning of the Talmud. I think the Talmud meant this. No, he thinks, and they're arguing for hours. I've been to this training system, and you could argue for hours about what the Gemara meant. So here's the thing. We have the Mishnah is an argument. The Gemara is an argument about the argument. And how do we study this text? We argue about it. So when you're studying Talmud in a Beit Midrash with your partner, which is called Chevruta, the partner you're studying with, and you're debating the meaning of the Talmud. So what's happening, there's a debate about the debate about the debate, right? So when you're studying Talmud, traditionally, what are you really doing? You are imitating the Talmud. You're like becoming the Talmud. Amos Oz, Amos Oz, Amos Oz, a very important, famous Israeli writer, had the following observation. The Jewish tradition is not a, tra- it's a tradition of a sacred argument which means every generation is arguing about what the last generation said. Not only arguing about what the last generation argued about, we're also sometimes arguing with the last generations. So it's not like a body of knowledge that moves from generation to generation. It's an ongoing conversation, ongoing argument that moves from generation to generation. Same as Oz noticed the following paradox. Let's say I study basics of Jewish tradition, and I say, I disagree with this. What just happened to me? If a Jewish tradition, according to Amos Oz, is an ongoing debate, and I come in and I say, I disagree with the tradition. I just joined the tradition. Because if the tradition is an ongoing argument, paradoxically, by disagreeing with it, you're joining it. How do you join a conversation? By saying, I don't agree. That's how you join. That's not how you get rejected. That's how you join. So this is would say the intellectual history that in its core you have the paradox or the oxymoron of the canonization of a debate, not of the conclusion of the debate, not of the law, but the disagreement regarding the law. The Talmudic tradition is not only about a sacred debate that you have to study, because there's another piece to this. The other piece to this is that Jews are expected to obey the law. So like when it comes to Hanukkah, in the end, 
Do you know who the law is according to? The pessimists or the optimists that light one candle, second candle, or start with eight and end with one? Do you know who the law is according to? The law is according to Beit Hillel. The law is according to the optimists. So, there's 61 books in the Talmud. All the books canonized many, many debates. Later on in the, Jew- in the tradition, scholars decided, okay, when it comes to that argument, they're right. When it comes to that argument, they're right. And they created a secondary literature called halachic literature. Let me say a little bit about this term called halacha. What does halacha mean? We translate it into Jewish law. But halacha in Hebrew and in ancient Hebrew has a different flavor to it. Halacha means to walk. So the law is the path that you walk on. That's what halacha is. And it's very interesting, but that is also the meaning of the law according to Islam. What's the category that Muslims use to understand the law? The sharia. What is sharia in Arabic? It's a path. By the way, the Chinese have a very similar idea. I mean, you're talking about specifically Taoism. What is, and different, this is now an alternative ancient wisdom. What is the Tao? The Tao is the way, the path. So we have here a shared intuition by ancient civilizations that feel that maybe as opposed to a Western intuition, their life is measured by results. They say, no, actually life is measured not by what you've achieved, but by the path you've walked on, the Tao, the Sharia, the Halacha. So when the Talmud says Halacha is according to, let's say, Beit Hilal, it's saying you should walk on the path of Beit Hilal. That's what it means more literally and symbolically and metaphorically. That's what the law means. It's the path you walk on, guided by these instructions. So... But halacha is according to one side of the argument, right? There's this agreement between, like, the example I'm using here, Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai, two schools of thought. Halacha is according only to one of them. So let's put this together. If I'm expected to obey the halacha, and I'm also expected to study Talmud, if we put that together, that means I have a practical life, and I have an intellectual life. The practical life, I obey the law. The intellectual life, I study the debate regarding the law. This is the full, complete Jewish life according to the Talmudic scholars. But here's the thing. I'm obeying the law and I'm not allowed to obey the other opinion that was not considered halacha, not considered the law. So you put this together, but I'm obligated to study Talmud. Let's put this together. That means that my intellectual life will be a lot broader than my practical life. Intellectually, I need to study the opinions of Hillel and Shammai. Practically, I live only according to Hillel and not according to Shammai, which means I am obligated to study opinions that I am not allowed to live by. That would be like creating an intellectual world that's a lot broader in your practical world, that we, let's say, I'm a progressive liberal Democrat, and that's my activism, that's how I vote, that's my practical political life. But I read books written by conservatives. 
and I listen to podcasts of Republicans. And I'm very interested in theories of right-wingers because my intellectual world is larger than my practical world. That's the reality that the Talmud is trying to create. You're obligated to study the debate. You're also obligated to live only according to one side of that debate. Now, the reality that this is creating, I want to just compare this to the contemporary reality we're living in. How many people do we know that are hardcore right-wing conservatives and are very curious about liberal worldview? Their intellectual world contains liberal books, liberal theories, liberal YouTube, liberal lectures, but they live as conservatives. So your intellectual world is wider than your practical world. So we know one of the reasons for polarization in the world we're living today has everything to do with the fact that our intellectual world is designed today by algorithms. I'm sure we all know this, but I just want to use uh, the observation of Eli Fraser, one of the people that managed to capture this in a very interesting way, where on your feed in Facebook, the posts that you're reading are the posts that the algorithms of Facebook assume that you're going to agree with. And that's because, as we know, the economic model of Facebook is that the more attention we spend on their platform, the more money they make. This is what Tim Wu from Columbia University calls the our attention merchants. They're taking our attention, we're getting our attention for free, and they're selling it for money. And when attention is a commodity, they want more of it. And because we all suffer from, I'm sure we all know this, from uh, the phenomenon that research is called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is that we really love our own opinions. We love our own views. And it's very enjoyable for us to listen to someone saying to us the views we already have. Actually, the definition of a genius is someone that says out loud your own views, but he says it better than yourself. That's a genius. Wow, he's so smart. So smart. So impressive. As a, an Israeli writer wrote, one of the reasons why we love our own opinions. We love our own opinions for the same reason we love our children. Because they're ours. They're our opinions. And we're attracted emotionally to our own opinions. Now, this is a weakness we all have. That's how we're designed. That's how we're wired. But this is a weakness that social media uses because their economic model is more attention for them. Our attention is their money. So they'll feed us with our opinions in order to glue us to their screens, to their platforms. As a result, we are exposed to something very interesting. And we all know this, right? I think the framing of Eli Fraser is very interesting. The definition of brain, what the, the mechanism of brainwashing is that if you repeat something many, many times, all your defense, intellectual defense mechanisms collapse when you hear something repeated many, many times. And the reason is that the feeling, the intuition that something is right and the feeling that something is very familiar are very much the same. We have a hard time creating a distinction between very familiar to feels right. And because of that, so if you repeat something many, many times, it's so familiar, it seems right. It, it seems more than right. It seems obvious. 
And that's how propaganda works, right? You say something again and again and again until your defense mechanisms collapse and it just traps you and it seems so familiar, so obvious. How can you even think differently? What happens in Facebook is more interesting. It's not a fascistic party. It's not a populist party taking an idea, repeating it again and again and again. What your Facebook does is something more interesting. It takes your opinions, your opinions, and it is sent back to you again and again, repeated again and again. So Eli Fraser calls auto-propaganda. You find that term very interesting. Auto-propaganda, where it's not a party injecting their opinions in your mind. It's Facebook injecting your mind deeper inside your own opinions. Now, we all have some kind of reservations or doubt regarding our opinions. But if you leave in Facebook, the doubt regarding your own opinions becomes certainty because you're brainwashed to believe your own theories. Because you have your own theories, your own opinions again and again. Auto-propaganda. So the Talmud forces you to escape your own opinions and to study opinions that you are not allowed to live by. It's forbidden to live by those opinions, but you have to study those opinions. John Dewey has an important, I think, observation about how do you cure a conversation. And he says that curiosity and anxiety or a reaction to the same thing. Difference. If uh, I meet someone that has a worldview and lives in a way that's completely, radically different than my worldview and the way I think you should live, I can react to that person either with anxiety. Why? Because it's different. Or with curiosity. Why? It's different. Anxiety and curiosity are reacting to the same thing. And therefore, he said the way to cure a conversation is not to cancel difference, it's to respond differently to difference, to move from anxiety to curiosity. But when we are all trapped in filter bubbles, you know, the paradox of Facebook, it's meant to connect people, but separating us and putting us in filter bubbles. Because I live in a filter bubble of my views, you live in a filter bubble of your views, and then when we meet, I don't think you're wrong. I think something's really wrong with you because I can't even understand. Can't even begin to understand your world. We're in different filter bubbles. Which takes me to the to a question. Is it, you know, this is, I'm, I'm just trying, I don't know if this is calling, reframing the conversation or broadening the conversation. The Talmud is a ancient text that canonized disagreements. The tradition of studying Talmud is about disagreeing about disagreements. And then there is the law that you're not allowed to live by both sides of this agreement, but by only one side, creating a reality where your intellectual world is broad, even when your practical world is narrow. Now, I would like to start landing this airplane with reading with you all apart from the Talmud. So in the Talmud, there's 61 books. This is page 13 from one of them. A book called Ehuvim. So we have this in Hebrew and in English. I'll try to read. Rabbi Abba said, Rabbi Abba is a scholar, quoting, Rabbi Abba said that Shmuel said, the Talmud, you quote someone that quoted someone. You're trying to pass the tradition. 
Rabbi Abba said that Shmuel said, for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hilel disagreed. So imagine an argument that lasts for three years. Imagine you're in a room and people are arguing for three years. These said, the halacha is in accordance with our opinion. And these said, the halacha is in accordance with our opinion. So for three years, now this is interesting, as scholars noticed. This is not an argument about a specific halacha, a specific law. This is halacha according to, this is an argument according to what? Everything. Who's the entire system according to? And Beit Hila is saying the system, the halacha, is according to our way. Beit Shammai is saying, no, it should walk in our way, in our path, in our Tao, in our Sharia. Ultimately, a divine voice emerged. So they're arguing, and now God appears in the argument, which is a very important moment. What will God say? Who is the halacha according to? So God's voice emerged and proclaimed, both these and those are the words of the living God. So they're arguing for three years, and what they're really arguing about is the following. Beit Hilo says, God thinks I'm right. And Beit Shammai is saying, no, God thinks I'm right. And then God appears, and what does God say? Well, I actually think that you're both right. Now, this is a different way of God to be involved in a conversation. The destructive way of God to be being involved in a conversation is when my opinions are God's opinions, and therefore I can't listen to you, I can only fight you, you can't. That's how it destroys a conversation. But what if God's involved? What if the way to cure a conversation is not to kick God out of the conversation? But what if God, what if you realize that my opinions are God's opinions and your opinions are God's opinions? And now that God forces me to listen to you, because if I listen only to myself, I trap my own ecosystem, God's revelation is partial. I'm not listening to the entire richness of God's revelation if I'm not listening to the person I am disagreeing with. This Talmudic way, this is a God doesn't destroy the conversation. This is a God that forces us to make this conversation sacred. But that's not the only thing that the God said when God revealed himself or herself and said, that you're both are right. God says something else. However, the halacha is in accordance with the opinion of Betilo. I want to notice this. <laughs> God says, you're both right, but the law is not according to both of you. The law is according to only one side. Now, this is a very interesting opinion, the opinion of God. Is it possible that both are right, but practically we're not going to live according to both that, or let's say, to secularize this, to live in a world where you realize that intellectually all voices have value, but practically I'm not going to live according to all voices and all opinions. Do you create a distinction between having being pluralism in thought, but strong, devoted activism according to one opinion in your deeds? To be broad in your thinking and narrow in your doing? That's the model that the Talmud is offering and it's, and it's lending this position to God. Now, it doesn't end here. Talmud is going to ask the obvious question. I told you there's the Mishnah and the Gemara, right? The Mishnah is, okay, we had the story about two people arguing. Now, now the Gemara is going to ask a question about what just happened there. The Gemara asks, 
You see this, the, the next, the, the last page? The Gemara asks, since both these and those are the words of the living God, why are Beitila privileged to have the halacha established in accordance with their opinion? It's a good question. If they're both right, so why is the law according to one side? The reason is that they were agreeable and forbearing, showing restraint when affronted. And when they taught the halacha, they would teach both their own statement and the statement of Beit Shammai. Moreover, when they formulated their teaching and cited dispute, they prioritized the statements of Beit Shammai to their own statements in difference to Beit Shammai. So why is halacha according to Beit Hidu? It's because of the different intellectual nature of the school of thought of Beit Hidu. And here is the difference. In the school of thought of Beit Shammai, they used to teach only the opinions of Beit Shammai and the theories of Beit Shammai. Meaning Shammai was an eco-chamber of the opinions of Beit Shammai. In Beit Hidu, they used to teach the theories of Beit Shammai and the theories of Beit Hidu. And not only did they teach in Beit Hidu the ideas of Beit Shammai, when they taught Beit Shammai, they gave it their best argument. Not like what we do. You explain them in a way that they look ridiculous. No, no. Their best argument. And the reason that I know that they explained Beit Shammai and they gave them the best argument is because in the Talmud, the greatest Beit Shammai scholars learned their Beit Shammai were students of Beit Hile. You understand? The greatest, greatest Beit Shammai scholars learned their stuff not in the Beit Shammai school, but in the Beit Hilel school. So why is halacha according to Beit Hilel? Halacha is according to Beit Hilel, it seems not because they're right, because both sides are right. Halacha is according to Beit Hilel because they don't live in an echo chamber, because they are listeners. Now, there are Talmudic scholars in the world, and they did the following research. They went through the entire Talmud, and they mapped out all of the disagreements between these two schools of thoughts, Beit Shammai and Beit Hilel. And they ask, how many times did Beit Shammai change their mind in the middle of the debate? And it was very easy because how many times did it happen that Beit Shammai changed their mind in the middle of the debate? Can you guess? It never happened. Zero. They never. But Beit Hilel changed their mind at least a quarter of the conversations. Roughly 25% of the debates, Beit Hilel like, you know what? I think you're right. They changed their mind and they adopted the position of Beit Shammai. That is why halacha is according to Beit Hilel. Gilbert Reil. I know this is really weird. I'm saying Gilbert Reil in Hebrew pronunciation, but Gilbert Reil, yeah, has a, that's, he's just wearing So Gil, Gilbert Reil has a great, has an interesting observation that the definition of listening is putting your views, your opinions at risk. Like if I'm entering a conversation with Josh and I know there's no chance I'll change my position while we're talking, I'm not listening. As my wife said, Micha, you're nodding. You're not listening. Josh had a great line yesterday. He said, what's the difference? Oh, right. That sometimes they say in Washington, the definition of listening is waiting your turn to speak. Okay. <laughs> if there's a chance that by the end of the conversation, I'll have a different worldview. I'm really listening, which means to listen is to risk, to put your opinions at risk. Bet halacha is according to bet hile because they were listeners, because they're willing to risk their worldviews and change their worldviews during the debate. The paradox is that the law, Jewish law, law 
is not according to the people that stuck to the, that they were glued to their principles and never changed their mind. Paradoxically, halacha is according to the people who changed their minds. So we're living according to the people, to the opinion of the people that didn't think that their opinion was sacred. I'll summarize with one last thing. God is not only a threat to religion, to conversation, where you think that you have absolute certainty because God thinks you're right. What happens when God is not really there, but we have a religious attitude towards conversation? Religious attitudes, this is how a religious attitude towards politics could look like. In religion, like in, when it comes to faith, and I believe, let's say, in the incarnation or trinity or any importance, belief, faith, credo, idea, that's not a worldview. It's not an opinion I have. It becomes who I am. In faith, your opinions are your identity. It's who you are. Many times in politics, that's what happens to us. My view about whatever it is in Israel, let's say the future of the West Bank, it's not a, the opinion you have. It becomes who you are. It transforms from your opinion to your identity. Suddenly you are, it's not that I think we should stay in the West Bank. No, I'm a right winger, which means it's who I am. It's my identity. Now, when opinions become identities, what happens to the conversation? Now you're not questioning my opinion because that opinion is who I am. So you're not questioning my opinion. You're questioning my identity. And we're questioning my identity, my ability to be flexible is impossible. You're threatening me, you're threatening my existence. I would say the tell the Hillel attitude would look like this, where I realize that my opinions are not who I am. They're just my opinions. And giving power, that's what the Talmud does, gives power to the people that don't stick. They create distance between who they are and who their opinions are, I think is a very important idea. The world has serious issues like we are learning in this very important and interesting and fascinating conference. And the only way to figure out what to do is to be flexible in our thinking. But when we identify with your, our opinions, when we become who we are, we can't have flexible thinking and we can't have flexible thinking then we can't have creative thinking. We can't come up with new ideas. So I hope the, as opposed to the algorithms and the echo chamber model, the Talmudic model is interesting, inspiring, and helpful. I don't know how to turn this into reality. Well, I hope this broadens our opportunities. Faith Angle connects leading journalists with the enduring questions raised by religion. Thanks for listening. Thank you.